going to happen. I'm about to go. But if I go, I will prepare a place for you and all these things. In John chapter 14, verse 29, he says, I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will what? You will believe, right? This picture of the future, I'm giving it to you now so that when it does come to pass, you're not freaking out, but that you're invited to trust me. You're invited to trust me. And so over the last several weeks, as we've been talking about this dream that God has for humanity and that God has for us as a church, for his people, we have a dream. We, we see this dream that he has given to us to inspire us to live on mission, but also to invite us to trust. A few weeks ago in part one, we found that God has a dream. In Revelation 14, he has a dream of a people who share a message that produces a harvest in preparation for his soon return. Last week we saw, as we looked at the messages that produce this harvest, as we looked at the messages that actually prepare and pave the way for Jesus to return, we realized that this message, this three angels message of Revelation 14, it's summed up in three simple words. Look to Jesus. Do you remember that? Look to Jesus. That's it. Plain and simple. Why is that? Because here, not just at the end of time, but all throughout time, humanity has had a problem of looking away from Jesus. I think we all know this, right? Humanity has had a problem with looking away from Jesus. Even when we profess or claim to be looking to Jesus and putting our trust in Him, the reality is that even when we have heavenly goals, we somehow fool ourselves into thinking that we need to rely upon human power to achieve those goals. But over and over... Throughout history and especially at the end of time, there's a special message of looking to Jesus, an appeal to the heart to fully and absolutely trust himself or herself to Jesus. So who is it that God will use at the end of time to to proclaim this message? I would say it's people who are looking to Jesus, right? In Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness, as something that's firsthand experience. And then the end will come. Today, as we're going to study this third part of the dream, we're going to look at the dream of Revelation 14, but we're actually going to discover that Revelation 14 has a prequel. Revelation 14 has a what? A prequel. That is, it's, there's, there's something that sets the stage for Revelation 14. We're going to find that God is inviting a special group of people at the very end of time to be part of his prophetic mission, his prophetic dream to appeal to humanity to look to Jesus. All right, so we're going to look through prophecy together. We're going to look through three prophetic passages. So buckle your safety belts. We're about to get into it. And I'll, I'll make a disclaimer. This is, this is meaty stuff, so to speak. This is like, this is wheat bread material. This isn't your white bread. You squish it up and you swallow it in one gulp. This is your wheat bread material that requires some, some chewing, okay? And so if it feels like I'm going at 100 miles an hour, I apologize, but there's going to be an opportunity where we can catch up sometime, study together more, and even maybe set aside a specific series just for breaking down these prophecies. All right, so before we get into that, let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to lead us. Father in heaven, we need you every hour, especially now. God, we thank you for the dreams that you have given us and that you are inviting us through these dreams to trust you more. You're inviting us to know what these dreams, these prophetic revelations say, not just so that we can hold it over other people's heads and say, we know it and you don't, but so that we can be stepping into ever deeper, ever higher, into a deeper relationship of trust in Jesus. 
And so right now I'm asking for the Holy Spirit of truth, not just to give us truth as a proposition, but to reveal to us truth as a person, as it is in Jesus. I pray, Father, for each heart that is here, that through the things that are spoken and through the things that are read, your Holy Spirit would be able to communicate just what I need to hear today, just what each person needs to hear today. And so we thank you in advance for the way that you'll lead. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, amen. All right, you ready for some wheat bread? Here we go. Daniel chapter 8 is actually where we're first going. Prophetic passage number 1, Daniel chapter 8. Specifically in verse 14, Daniel is in the Old Testament um, a little bit. He's actually the first of the smaller books of, of the prophets. So he's after Ezekiel. If you see Isaiah, you've got Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. A little bit more than halfway through your Bible. Daniel chapter 8. Living at the time of Babylon's reign, actually kind of the bridge between Babylon and the next uh, world empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 14. If you're there in Daniel 8, 14, say, I'm there. All right. Daniel 8, 14. If your neighbor needs a Bible, go ahead and share your screen or your Bible. Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. Daniel has seen a vision. Actually, he's seen several by the time we come to Daniel 8. In Daniel 2, he saw this vision of a statue with four different types of metals representing kingdoms, four kingdoms. In Daniel 7, he saw four different beasts representing four different kingdoms, those same kingdoms that he saw in Daniel 2. And in Daniel 8, he sees the same stream of history, except not just as beasts like lions and bears and leopards, but he sees them as sanctuary animals, ram, goat. And the angel that's interpreting this dream says to him, hey, look, these these things are representing kingdoms. You've got Medo-Persia and Greece. And then here at the end of this dream where he's seeing this kind of stream of world empires, I'll begin in verse 13. He hears an angelic conversation. Because throughout this dream, he has seen a beast actually take down the sanctuary of God. In verse 13, it says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who is speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? What was the question in verse 13? How long? How long will these things be? Imagine Daniel, who's watching this prophetic panorama of time, and he sees that the sacrifices, the sanctuary is being thrown down, made desolate. I mean, this is, this is personal stuff for Daniel. Why? Because Daniel came from Jerusalem. Daniel's hometown was Jerusalem. The temple was something he, he turned his heart to, his face to, literally to pray three times a day. Those sacrifices meant life to him because it was pointing forward to a Messiah. So he's saying, how long, this angel says. You can tell that Daniel is interested in this question. And in verse 14, another angel responds and he says, He said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be, what's the next word in your Bible? Cleansed or restored. This is very interesting. It's an angelic conversation, but the angel in verse 14 turns to Daniel and says, right? Did you notice that? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, this throws Daniel into a whirlwind. Why? Because Daniel, before he was taken captive from Jerusalem, 
he remembers hearing a prophet named Jeremiah kind of walking the streets of Jerusalem, actually kind of being persecuted by the religious leaders of the day. And there was a prophet named Jeremiah who said that, hey, this captivity is for your good. After 70 years, you're going to come back. Everything will be restored. That prophecy is actually written down in Jeremiah 29. It was quoted earlier. Actually, the last part of that, you'll seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. That comes from that prophecy. Hey, look, you're going to be taken captive, but there's going to be a conversion, time of revival. You're going to be taken back here. And Daniel hears this angel say, 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Notice how, how Daniel responds at the very end of the vision. At the very end of the vision, in verse 26, it says, The vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. All right, so this is good news. It's true. But then notice what the angel says. Therefore, do what to the vision? Seal up the vision. For it refers to many days in the future. And notice how Daniel responds. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the what? By the vision. But no one understood it. What is going on? Daniel is supposed to be this guy who is in tune with God, who has these, prop- who has these visions and is able to explain them. But there's a part of this vision that he doesn't quite get. It's not about the ram and the goat because the angel obviously explained it to him. But there's this vision of the evenings and the mornings, the 2300 days, which literally, you know, prophetic days are actually representative of literal years. And Daniel is thinking to himself, wait a minute. I remember when I was a teenager that there was a prophecy that it would only be 70 years before the sanctuary was rebuilt. And now Daniel is thinking, has this prophecy somehow been extended and multiplied? From 70 years to 2,300 years? So in Daniel chapter 9, he is praying his guts out. In verse 3, Daniel chapter 9, verse 3, just keep on reading. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, Oh Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. He's, he's praying a prayer of confession. He's praying a prayer of, God, if we totally messed up, would you please restore us and redeem us and take us back? Oh, 70 turns into 2,300. <laughs> Here's Daniel. He is weeping. He is pouring his heart out to God. And by the end of the chapter, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 22, Daniel chapter 9, verse 22, the angel who came in Daniel 8, comes to him again. Angel Gabriel, it says, in verse 22, And he informed me, talking with me, and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to do what? To understand. Oh, to understand what? The, the very thing that he didn't understand. The very thing that he was so sickened by. In verse 23, At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. I love that. <laughs> When you have questions, when you are torn up, not able to make sense of how life is working out or not working out, we should say, God's angels, God's heart is towards you, and He wants you to know that you are greatly beloved. Even when you don't feel like those prayers are being heard or answered, God gives us the assurance you are greatly beloved. And then at the end of verse 23, therefore, consider the matter, understand 
the vision. And what's very powerful is that here the angel starts explaining. And we're not going to go through every single detail of this prophecy. But notice he says this. He says 70 weeks. So kind of taking off from that larger 2,300 year prophecy. He's focusing on these first 70 weeks. He says 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And skip on down to verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And we're not, like I said, we're not going to go into every single line and, and detail of this. But here's the assurance that Daniel desperately needed to hear. Is the restoration of Jerusalem and its sanctuary at the beginning of this 2,300 years or at the end of it? <laughs> and what Daniel needed to hear was that it was at the beginning. Okay, 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 okay. All right, we're at the end of Jeremiah's prophecies, so here's another one that's going to happen, all right? So that's what Daniel needed to hear. And this angel is basically letting Daniel know that this 2,300-year prophecy has less to do with the earthly sanctuary in Daniel's time and more to do with the heavenly sanctuary at the end of time. Did you follow that? Daniel 8.14, the sealed vision, the, the vision that, that, that Daniel was told to, hey, just, just close this for it's for the time of the end. That sealed vision has less to do with the earthly temple in his time, but more to do with the heavenly temple at the end of time. Do we follow that? Yes or no? Yeah? All right. Are we following? Is that okay? Yeah? So Daniel has this vision. It's a long time prophecy. He's thinking it's about the earthly temple, but God says, no, it's not about yours. It's about mine. <laughs> The heavenly temple at the end of time. So for now, Daniel, just close it up. Seal it up. Because it's not relevant for your day. It's relevant for the end of days. Actually, if you go to Daniel 12, the, Daniel repeats, or the angel repeats this to Daniel. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. And notice the next word. Until the time of the end. The implication is that at some point at the end of time, this book would be unsealed. Do you follow that? Yeah? This little book, this, this sealed vision is eventually going to be opened. And it says, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. In other words, uh, the, the scroll will be unfurled. People are going to be searching back and forth to see what Daniel's vision really means. Okay? This is the first prophetic passage. It's a vision of a sealed, or sorry, it's a, it's a prophecy of a sealed vision that will eventually be opened. All right, go with me to prophetic passage number two. It's in Revelation. Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 11. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. If you're there, say, I'm there. Awesome. All right. If you've ever studied the book of Revelation and been confused, uh, you're, not, you're not alone. <laughs> But the reality is that there is a companion book to Revelation, and that is the book of Daniel. And that's kind of what we're following here today. There's a vision in Revelation 10 that for a long time confused me. I just, whenever I would read through Revelation, just kind of glossed over it. But it was about uh, maybe my early 20s, um, which seems long, long ago now. But uh, in my early 20s, I, I, this, this vision was opened up to me in connection with Daniel 8. And here's why. All right, Revelation chapter 10. I'm going to start in verses 1 and 2, actually. Here's John, the revelator, okay, the last living apostle who followed Jesus. It says, I saw still 
another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And notice what's interesting, aside from just the blazing glory that's coming from this angel. Notice in verse 2, he had a little book that was what? Open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Very interesting. We didn't read through Daniel 12. We quoted a verse from there. But in Daniel 12, he actually sees an angel who puts one foot on the river and one foot on the bank. Very interesting. Similar imagery here. And this angel in in Revelation has a little book that's open in his hand. And then notice down in verse 8. As John is watching this vision of this amazing being with a little book that's open... John is now invited to step into the drama, so to speak. He's, he's invited to actually be a player in the vision that he's watching. Notice, Revelation 10, verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Verse 9. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and do what with it? Eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, and it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, right? And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Very, very interesting. John sees an angel with a little book that is open in his hand. As John is watching this vision play out, he is invited to be a player in the vision to actually eat the book. And when he eats it, ingests it, There's something that happens. Now, was John actually asked to just kind of get some butter and salt and bon appetit? Is that what was going on here? No. This is actually prophetic speak. This is Old Testament language. In fact, uh, this is something that God did for Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel also. In Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah says it like this. Your words were found, and I did what to them? I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. There's something about ingesting the Word of God that changes your life, that brings joy like a spring, that brings transformation and sanctification. And and Jeremiah found that, I found God's words and I ate them. But notice in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 1, as God is speaking to this prophet, kind of commissioning him, he says, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and do what else? And go speak to the house of Israel. Okay, so in the Old Testament, when God was giving messages to these prophets, he said, eat them. And as you eat them, it's like a commission to share them. Do you follow? Yes or no? Yeah? Okay, so fast forward back to Revelation 10. Here's John. He sees a little book that's open. God tells him to eat it, which means that at some point at the end of history, God's people would eat a little book that used to be closed but is now open and to them it would be as a message that was like joy to their hearts that would commission them to share that same message do you follow that yes or no yeah do we connect the dots there so john sees god is representing uh, a picture of god's end time people in this vision a picture of a people who are commissioned with the message of whatever that little open book is so the question is, what is that little open book? Connecting the dots from Daniel to Revelation. This book that was sealed for the time of the end, 
in Revelation 10 is now opened. Do you follow it? Yes or no? This is a, 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 this is a prophecy foretelling a time when God's people would understand this vision that didn't have anything to do with Daniel's day, but it had everything to do with the end of days. A time when God's people would start studying the book of Daniel and, and realize the connections and realize that prophecies are being fulfilled. It would tell that, that at that time it would be as rejoicing in their heart when they ingested it and as something to commission them to serve God's people. This is beautiful. It's a picture of God's people at the end of time commissioned to share the message of Daniel's prophecies. No, here's the question. Did this ever happen? Was there ever a time in Christian history, in redemptive history, when the people of God began to understand what Daniel's visions were all about? Not as referring to Daniel's day, but as referring to the end of time. Was there a time when God's people actually began to study even the 2300-day prophecy? Yes! This is so cool. Okay. (laughs) So there's a guy named William Miller. Uh, Maybe you've heard his name before. Okay, so God's people will be commissioned to share the message of Daniel's open book. And there was a time where this this gentleman, he was a a farmer. Actually, I think he served in the 1812 uh, war. So he was a vet, but he was also a farmer. And he was someone who really didn't have a strong connection with God, but he experienced conversion. God grabbed a hold of his heart. And William Miller began to study the Bible diligently, fervently. In fact, his habit of studying the Bible was to read it from cover to cover. And if there was ever a word or a verse or a concept that he didn't quite understand, he would look up all the words or verses related to that very same idea so that he could have a full understanding of what that verse is all about before he moved on to the next. And in his thorough and diligent study, he came to this verse in Daniel chapter 8, which we read earlier. The 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. And as he was putting things together, days in prophecy, Bible prophecy representing literal years, and and things like this, he began to realize that that time prophecy of 2,300 years was actually going to be fulfilled in the 1840s. You guys noticed when William Miller lived? Yeah. Okay, so late, uh, late 18th century, early 19th century. And he, William Miller is like putting all these things together. And he says, wait, this is like right around the corner. And what was moving for William Miller is that when he looked at Daniel 8.14, he didn't have a concept of the heavenly temple. You know, he didn't have a concept of the heavenly temple that needed to be cleansed. What he assumed was just like the rest of, of you know, the day, uh, the theologians in the day, they had considered that, okay, the sanctuary being cleansed meant the earth being cleansed with fire. And for William Miller, what he understood is that, man, that must mean that Jesus is coming to cleanse the earth in the 1840s. And William Miller, as he studied this, he felt this huge burden to share this message. He was eating the scroll. He was eating the scroll and he felt this burden to share the message just like Ezekiel did. Just like Jeremiah did. It was the joy and rejoicing of his heart. He wanted to see his Savior face to face and he knew that the world needed to know and he said to himself, I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just a farmer. No one's going to listen to a farmer. And so his wife challenges him and he's just like, oh, distraught with all this. He goes out into his farm and he kneels before God and he says, God, I will share, but I am not going to invite myself. Someone has to invite me. He gets up from his knees feeling confident, 
kind of looks at his wife with a smirk, and then all of a sudden there's this knock on the door. And it's his nephew, who had been traveling by foot for two hours already, say, hey, Uncle William, um, you know, Pastor so-and-so, he is sick. He's wondering if you would be willing to take the pulpit this weekend. Maybe you could share the things that you're studying in prophecy. William Miller falls to his knees once again. <laughs> he is upset. And so he fulfills his vow to God. And from that moment on, there was a message that began to be shared with the world. A message of prophecies that began to click, dots beginning to connect, and people realizing that Jesus is coming again. This is what they thought. This message, as they opened this scroll and as they ate it, was as the joy and rejoicing of their heart. It was so powerful. I mean, when, when the time of the fulfillment that was predicted uh, came in, the, in 1844, it was known as uh, the, the Second Great Awakening around this time. And people would walk past each other down the streets being so desirous of seeing Jesus, letting nothing be between their hearts and Jesus, that they would pass each other on the streets, perfect strangers, and yet they would, say, they would stop each other and say, brother, sister, do you see sin in my life that needs to be repented of? They wanted to see Jesus. They didn't want anything to hold them back. This was a time of great revival, and yet we all know that 1844 came and passed, right? And this time of great revival turned into a great disappointment. And this panned out exactly as Revelation 10 portrays it. Go back again, go back again. Revelation chapter 10. In verse 10 it says, Then I took the little book out, then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. It was sweet. It was an amazing experience. A party in the mouth, so to speak. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became, what's the next word in your Bible? Sour. Mine says bitter. Doubled over. Feeling like, what did I just do? This message that I received and started to share, that was the joy and rejoicing of my heart, has now become a curse to me. This was a great disappointment. And after William Miller and those who had come out of different churches and different denominations to listen to the message of William Miller, they, they, were, known as, kinda, they, they were known as the Millerites. Okay? Uh, they, they began to, to kind of seek for answers. And many of them, I would say many of them, jumped ship. They said, you know what? Bible prophecy, Bible truth. Is there really such a thing as Bible truth? And many of them gave up on God gave up on faith altogether. There was another response, not just complete rejection, but there was a response of, of searching, like, oh man, th there must be another date. Maybe we miscalculated some certain things. So there was a group that continued to set different dates for the coming of the Lord. So there's a rejecting, rejecting group. There is a date-setting group. There is a spiritualizing group, too. Uh, you look through church history of the Second Great Awakening and the Great Disappointment and things, and there was a group of people who said, you know what, the kingdom of heaven has come. And didn't Jesus say that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to become like little children? And so they would start walking around on their hands and knees and saying goo goo gaga and all these kinds of things because they wanted to be children who spiritually entered into the kingdom of heaven. That group didn't last very long. Neither did the date-setting group because the date-setters, I mean, after a while, you just give up hope. Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick, right? 
But there was a fourth group. There was a fourth group, and they were known as Advent believers because they, they still looked for the coming of the Lord. This group of Advent believers said, you know, everything that we've studied, all the dots connect. The prophecies are true. We must have a misunderstanding of what the sanctuary being cleansed is all about. And that's when they discovered there was a temple in heaven. There was a sanctuary in heaven that needed to be cleansed. They discovered certain things about the the day of atonement in the earthly sanctuary that had prophetic implications for the end of time. A time when God would perform a day of atonement, so to speak. And as they connected the dots, they realized, wait a minute. 1844, something actually did happen. Could it be that in the heavenly temple, God began a new phase of redemptive history? And they realized that surely Jesus didn't come to the earth, but he did come to the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. This was huge for the Advent believers. And they realized that as they they saw that message in the prophecies, they realized, okay, even though we've had this sweet turned bitter experience, they realized that they still had a message to share. It was beautiful. And out of that movement came a group that we know today as Seventh-day Adventists. I don't know if you realize that. The story of Seventh-day Adventists. Maybe you knew something about William Miller. Maybe you knew something about the Great Disappointment. But here's the thing. The Advent movement did not come from an accident. I don't know if you... I mean, like, I'm the third of three children. Uh, My dad calls me a bonus. (laughs) It was my my sister, a year and a half later, my brother, and then four and a half years later, it came me. (laughs) He calls me a bonus. They weren't planning on it, but they're, they're glad to have me anyway. There's something about knowing that you're planned versus an accident um, that has, speaks something to your identity. I mean, I feel very, very badly for people who can't see uh, our world as coming from the hand of a loving creator, but coming from an accident. I mean, that doesn't speak purpose or meaning at all to me. Um, but when I read scripture and find that there is a God who has loved me from day one, whether or not I knew it. That's beautiful. That's a, that's a God that I can serve and trust. And here, the, what we see in Revelation 10 is that this Advent movement that came on the stage in the late 1800s did not come by accident. Did you hear that? It did not come by accident. There is a prophecy that actually demonstrates that this would happen. And as a 20-something-year-old, when I saw that, 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 right, mind blown. There's an interesting book called The Great Controversy, and Ellen White writes about this time of Christian history. She says, those who proclaimed this warning, you know, the Millerite message, 2,300 days, it's, it's being fulfilled. Those who proclaimed the message, or this warning, gave the right message at the right time. What? Yet God accomplished his own beneficent purpose in permitting the warning of the judgment to be given just as it was. The great day was at hand, and in his providence, the people were brought to the test of a definite time in order to reveal to them what was in their hearts. Very interesting. So, that, so God was actually allowing this misunderstanding of prophecy to be proclaimed in that way so that there would be a test of people's hearts. Notice what it says on the very next page. It says, it would teach them as only such an experience could, the danger of accepting the theories and interpretations of who? Of men 
instead of making the Bible its own interpreter. What? Did God really do this on purpose? Would he allow people to be misled, to go with a misunderstanding of Scripture in such a way that it would mislead people? Would God do that? Maybe another question, has God done that? Can you think of a Bible precedent where God allowed people to misunderstand Scripture in such a way as to draw attention to what he was doing in redemptive history? You think about the story. It was just about a week before the crucifixion. And Jesus knows it's time. So he starts going to Jerusalem, but he tells his disciples, hey, get me a donkey from the next town over. You remember that? The disciples are like, wait, did he just say donkey? (laughs) What? Why? Why? Because the disciples know something about prophecy. They know something about Zechariah chapter 9 that says, your king comes riding on a donkey. Peter and John look at each other. They start hustling to the next town. They get this donkey. They put Jesus on it. And can you imagine the anticipation? As they see Jesus sitting on that donkey, we're going to Jerusalem, and he's sitting on a donkey. They're getting everybody from everywhere saying, he's here, he's here. And they're pointing attention to the king coming on the donkey. Did Jesus know that he was not going to a throne, yes or no? Yeah. And he allowed the disciples to be carried on by this misapprehension of Scripture. Why? So that people, when he came to Jerusalem, would be paying attention to what he would do as the Lamb of God on Calvary's hill. At the end of time, he allowed William Miller and the Millerite movement to be misunderstanding of Scripture. Why? So that people could draw attention to what Jesus was going to do, not as the Lamb of God, but as the high priest. Not on Calvary's hill, uh, on the altar of sacrifice, but in the most holy place of the heavenly temple. What? So that people would be looking to him when the time happened. God did this on purpose. (laughs) All right, so I told you. Three prophetic passages, right? We've seen two. But let me just share, before we get to the third one, that it is possible for God, who takes our failing and misunderstanding and turns it into triumph for his glory. It is possible for your bitterest disappointments to turn into God's greatest triumphs. I don't know what heartaches you may be experiencing or have experienced in your life, but the things that you just cannot make sense of, why would God do this? What in the world is he doing? Is he really leading me? God is going to turn that, that mourning, into joy. He's done it before. He'll do it again and again and again. (laughs) This is the God we follow. This is the God we serve. This is the God who, it may feel like a descent, but he's going to land the plane. (laughs) This is the God who knows where he's going. I want to follow him too. All right, so we've got three prophetic passages. The last one. Uh, Actually, before we get there, I, I didn't quite finish off Revelation chapter 10, verse 11. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Okay, so out of this great disappointment, uh, the angel says, hey, look, you, you may feel like that was sweet and then bitter and you just want to give up, but go ahead, get back up again. Go ahead and prophesy again. Go ahead and share these messages again. All right? Here is the prequel to the three angels' messages. Go now to Revelation chapter 14, just a few chapters later. Chapter 14, verses 6 
through 12. We'll just look at verse 6 here. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. If you're there, say, I am there. All right. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every what? Every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. That sounds oddly familiar to the very end of Revelation 10. You must prophesy again. Right? The angel tells John, who's doubled over after the eating that scroll, I shouldn't have done that. And the angel says, prophesy again about many nations, tribes, tongues, and people. And then here in Revelation 14, 6, there is a picture of a heavenly message that is going to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Who is it that is sharing this gospel message that says, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus? Who is it? It's the people who had been disappointed. It's the people who had been doubled over, feeling as though God had totally misled them. But then the angel tells, no, 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 no. <laughs> this disappointment is actually going to turn into triumph. Get up again. Prophesy again. And that Advent movement began to connect the dots and they saw Revelation 14, verses 6 through 12 as their divine calling. The proclamation of the everlasting gospel is the sequel to the prophetic commission of Revelation 10, verse 11. Do you follow that today, yes or no? Yeah. I know lunch is coming. Don't worry. Lunch is coming. (laughs) But here's the point. The three angels' messages that we see in Revelation 14 is the script of the Adventist movement. Remember, we've talked about it. These, uh, Revelation 14, these three messages come right before a picture of Jesus coming on the clouds. Jesus says, uh, he hears a voice, uh, an angelic voice saying, hey, throw in your sickle for the time of the harvest is ripe. On the heels of these three angels' messages, In other words, without these messages, there's no ripe harvest. Without these messages, there's no second coming of Jesus. And so who is it that's sharing these messages? I mean, are these angels, are we supposed to expect the clouds to open up and maybe kind of like a plane pulling a a sign or something? Are the angels supposed to unfurl their trumpet signs and just say, hey, this is angel number one's message, angel number two's? No, the angels of God are partnering with humanity to reveal to the world a message that appeals. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Which group of people is he going to do this through? Apparently, there's a prophetic group. A group who would experience disappointment. A group who would experience a commissioning to share these prophecies once again. A group known as the Adventist Movement. This is beautiful to me. In God's infinite wisdom, he divinely, divinely ordained a movement to call the world to look to Jesus. At the end of time, when Satan's schemes would be honed sharply to divert men's attention away from Jesus. That movement is the Seventh-day Adventist movement. You may have heard Seventh-day Adventist all your life or just last week. You may have heard this phrase thrown around. Maybe it's just another denomination. They do some weird things. They meet on a different day. They, you know, do things a little bit differently or whatever. But could it be that the SDA movement is not just another denomination in the phone book, but it is actually a prophetic movement? That when someone subscribes and says, you know what, I want to align myself 
to God's end time people, that they are actually saying, I want to be a fulfillment of prophecy. Do you follow that? That when I say, whoa, there's a group of people that at the end of time proclaims to the world, look to Jesus, and I want to be part of that. I'm not just saying, I'm just going to be a part of a different denomination. I'm saying, I want to step into this prophecy. I want to find my place there. That you and I have the opportunity to step into and be a fulfillment of Revelation's prophecies. Wow. I don't know about you, but that gets me. (laughs) All right? What what does this mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. (laughs) What this doesn't mean is that Seventh-day Adventists are better than everybody else. Is that what that means? No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. What this does mean is that the Adventist movement has a great responsibility to the rest of the world. That we are not privileged, that we are not, you know, set on a pedestal or things like that. No, but we have been entrusted with a special message at a special time. That's all it means. Just like Israel was. Israel was entrusted with a special message at that time, but they used it for their own, uh, what would you say, sense of favoritism and, and personal elitism. No, but we've been entrusted with a special message at a special time. The end time issues depicted in Revelation 13. Man, when you start just kind of connecting the dots there, it requires an end time people with an end time message. And so when we choose to join the voice of our lives, to resonate with the messages of the three angels of Revelation 14 that call the world to look to Jesus, we are taking on a prophetic identity. We are in fact a living fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And I want to appeal to you today. Do you want to be part of that movement? God's got a people. He's already revealed his dream. He's going to use people to lead others to look to Jesus in a way that is especially needed at the end of time. Do you want to be a living fulfillment of Bible prophecy? I, for one, do. (laughs) I do. Last week, we gave out uh, these membership request cards. You know, for the first year of our church's existence here in Castle Rock, um, we didn't really talk much about becoming a member. We wanted to live out the culture of what we felt like God was calling us to do and be, to seek God, to share life, to serve the world. I love seeing the shirts out. I love it. And so last week, we started giving out these membership request cards, and we're going we're gonna to give you another opportunity to do that today. Maybe I can get some help, actually. Ruben, if you want to help me out here. Grab another. <clears throat> Actually, I'll take one too. <clears throat> Can you help? Thank you. I want to give you an opportunity, if you haven't already, um, look this over. I just want to encourage you guys. God has a people. And here in Castle Rock, we want to be that kind of people. We exist to make passionate followers of Christ who seek God share life, and serve the world. And so when we encourage people to become members of of the church, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you're not a member, you can't enjoy hanging out, you can't enjoy being part of what we're up to, that you can't contribute to the mission that we're already accomplishing. But I I do want to say this, that if you want to become a member, if you sense that God is calling you, inviting you to become a member, realize that being a member is more than just taking up a seat. You follow that? (laughs) Being a member is more than just having your name in a certain book rather than a different book. Being a member, like it says here at the top on the back side, it says, become a member, be a mission partner. 
As a member of the Castle Rock SDA Church, I want to be and help others become a disciple who seeks God, shares life, and serves the world. Hopefully that's clear. Do you follow that? I, I hope that's, that's crystal clear there. And if you're wondering, well, what does that really mean to seek God, share life, serve the world? We've tried to summarize it there. I want to be a, be a disciple and help others become a disciple who seeks God by accepting Jesus as Savior and surrendering to Him as Lord. By consistently engaging habits to know God and grow to be more like Him. That's what we feel like it means to seek God. I want to be a disciple who shares life. What does that mean? Uh, allowing the gospel to transform my human relationships. So we realize the gospel is not just a vertical thing, but it's also a horizontal invitation to transformation. But helping make our church a community of consistent gathering, of genuine belonging, and practical kindness. That's what we feel like sharing life is all about. Well, what about serving the world? Serving the world is joyfully using my God-given time, talents, and treasure to share Christ's love in both word and deed. Serving the world is aligning my life to the prophetic message and mission that will prepare others for Jesus to return. That's exactly what we've been talking about the last three weeks. If you want to become a member, if you feel like God is inviting you, then go ahead and, and fill this out. I'd like to become a member and a mission partner of the Castle Rock SDA Church. And how do you do that? Three simple ways. Maybe you're already a member of an Adventist congregation somewhere else. And since Castle Rock has come into being, you're saying, man, uh, that's a mission that I want to align with. You can go ahead and, and select the, the first option there. That's a membership transfer from another Adventist congregation. You can kind of let us know uh, what congregation that is. Maybe you want to signify your commitment to the mission that God is calling us to through baptism or rebaptism. Baptism is all about saying, I belong to Jesus and no one else. That's why baptism is by immersion. It's not baptizing your hand, not just baptizing your feet or whatever. It's, it's your whole self, all in for Jesus. It's a symbol of being buried, crucified, buried, and resurrected with Jesus. It's a beautiful profession. And maybe you want to signify your commitment both to Jesus and to his end-time movement through baptism. Go ahead and check that out, baptism or rebaptism. Or maybe you've been baptized by immersion in another, Advent, or another Christian congregation, another Christian communion, and you say, you know, I want to profess my faith to align myself with what God is doing at the end of time. You want to do that through profession of faith to acknowledge your commitment to God's end time movement. Obviously, this is something that doesn't just happen in a moment. If this is something you need to pray through, talk to your family about, man, I encourage you to take this home. But if this is something that you realize God's inviting me, why wait? Then go ahead, fill that out. We're, we're uh, the, the Rocky Mountain Conference of Seventh-day Adventists has encouraged us, saying, hey, you've been doing an awesome work for the last 12 months. Keep moving forward and invite people to actually formally join your congregation in a way that says, hey, this is who we are and this is our mission field, All right? So go ahead, fill that out, pray it over. And there's a basket right there by the T-shirts. Right there, so just perfectly placed right there by the t-shirts. Don't worry, you don't need to uh, s- submit one of these cars in order to grab a t-shirt. This is a birthday gift from us to you. But just realize that if this is something that you sense God inviting you to, whether through membership transfer, baptism, or rebaptism, or profession of faith, we want to be supportive of journeying with you. Does that mean if you're checking off membership transfer or one of those baptism or profession of faith that you're, we're going to find some snowy pit right now to baptize you? No. That's not, <laughs> we're going to take some time to prepare to walk through 
Kind of like marriage counseling, you know, like you want to know the family that you're getting married to, so to speak. Anyways, God is up to something big, and I want to be a part of it. All right, let's bow our heads to pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you're the God who speaks, that you're the God who reveals, that you're the God who knows where he's going. Father, when we look around, when we kind of immerse ourselves in you know, the everyday news updates and things like that, we kind of wonder. We feel the descent, but we wonder if the pilot knows where he's going. And Lord, as we look at these prophetic passages now, we see without a shadow of a doubt that you are preparing the world for your soon return, and, and, and we want to be part of what you're doing. Lord, please ready us. Cause us to look to Jesus. Cause us to put our faith and trust not in the things of men, but in the things of God. Father, I thank you so much for what you have done throughout the year here in the Castle Rock Church. And I thank you for what you have yet to do, both in and through this community of faith. I pray, Father, that as we part from here, we would never part from your presence. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God who is leading. We just want to follow wherever you lead. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen and Amen.